We're here to talk about signs, symbols, signifiers, and how they morph and shift over time. So I can't imagine a more perfect place than a power station that became a museum. So in this space, in this room, in this time, we're looking at a whole range of topics. And the first thing that I was asked to speak about was how is the Holocaust remembered and observed in San Francisco? And I have really a range of answers to that. But the first piece that I want to do is there's a very old Jewish custom that you dedicate your teaching and your learning to someone in particular who's been important to you. And so I want to dedicate this talk today to Gilbert Baker, who is the creator of the rainbow flag and who left this world for hopefully a better one and possibly a less colorful one and in need of colorful updates. So thank you, Gilbert, and thank you for everything that you have brought to all of us. So we're here, as Gravity said, on the cusp of Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. And there are many ways in which the Holocaust is remembered in San Francisco. The occasion itself was actually established in Israel in 1953 as Yom HaZikaron which is a much longer name, which means, in a sense, Holocaust and Heroism Remembrance Day. It's now celebrated around the world, observed in different ways, in secular communities, in religious communities, with rituals, with the reading of names. And one of the events that's happening, and there are many in this area, is that every year at the Jewish Community Center, there is an observance. And it's a really moving tribute to the Holocaust through the lens of our Bay Area community. One of the treasures of San Francisco is hosted by the Jewish Family and Children's Service, which is our Holocaust Center, which is over on Post Street. They have an amazing library that has 13,000 books on the Holocaust. And in their archive, there are actually over 2,000 oral histories, there are memorabilia, there are objects, there are mementos, and other material that has been assembled over time. So if you haven't been there, I invite you to check it out. They have events. It's an amazing place to do research if anyone in your family in any way was connected to the Holocaust. Amazing place to go. There are several memorials, and I'm going to spiral around in this talk, in the city. But one of them that not very many people know about is that there is a Holocaust memorial near the California Palace of the Legion of Honor. And how many of you have been there? Great. So I don't have to say a lot about it. For those of you who haven't, it's an amazing, marvelous, horrifying work of sculpture created. It was installed in 1984, created by sculptor George Siegel. It's made in bronze. All the bronze is painted white, and there are 10 figures lying on the ground. And it's an archetypal visual of the kind of black and white photographs we see of dead bodies in the Holocaust. And then there's one standing figure behind barbed wire. If you haven't been there, it's the time and the season to go. It's marvelous. It's terrifying. It's heartbreaking. It's exquisite. So again, Monday this year is Holocaust Remembrance Day. Through the weekend, there will be events in synagogues and other places, again, at the Jewish Community Center. And if this is meaningful for you, step into these places. Because what went on then, as we'll hear again and again, is happening again 
it hasn't stopped. This is a piece of, it, that's what I want to say, is our damaged primate brains continue to divide between us and them and to vilify. And I'm hoping that not in another million years, but maybe in the next hour and a half, that we will transcend that and change. Not likely. So what I want to do now is spiral into the second piece that I was invited to talk about, which is how is Holocaust Remembrance Day, and particularly this image of a pink triangle, how is this remembered literally and figuratively in this area? So these triangles, I didn't know about it as a kid. When I grew up, no one talked about the Holocaust. Sometimes people called it the Nazi era or Hitler times. It didn't have a name. It didn't have a label. The rabbi who trained me for my bar mitzvah had numbers on his arm. When I asked about it, people would say, oh, terrible things happened. Do not ever ask Rabbi Katz about it. It took a while for conversations to happen, for information to be exchanged. And so I didn't know anything about the fact that in addition to Jews, that other people were persecuted. I didn't know homosexuals were persecuted. I heard again and again, six million Jews died. I didn't know that five million other people died under the Nazis, that the number we should think about is 11 or 12 and not six. And I didn't know that there were badges in these camps. And there was a whole series of badges that were mostly inverted triangles. We, we pretty much know the yellow star that Jews were forced to wear. What's interesting is Jews were forced in Europe way back into the Middle Ages to often identify themselves by objects on their clothing. One of the things is there was a period in the Middle Ages that Jews had to wear pointy caps. And this seems to be the origin, for those of you who remember this from school, of kids sitting in corners having to wear a dunce cap. So there's a long history to labeling, objectifying, and the Nazis built upon this by creating a whole system of inverted triangles, yellow stars, combinations of both, letters, numbers, and they were different in different camps and different work sites. But there's a basic kind of a list that I want to go over. Red inverted triangle, political prisoners. Green, professional criminals. Blue were foreign laborers and emigrants. Purple, religious dissidents. And 99% of the religious dissidents under the Nazis were actually Jehovah's Witnesses. Black was a really interesting category. The first label was people who were considered antisocial. As a kid, I was very antisocial. Would I have ended up there? I am not sure. This included people who were considered working shy, mentally ill, physically, emotionally disabled, alcoholics, drug addicts, vagrants, people who are avoiding conscription, a whole range of other categories. Prostitutes were included in this category. And all Roma, Sinti, Gypsy women were actually considered by the Nazis, all of them, as prostitutes and were labeled. Now, some of the people that ended up wearing the black triangle in Germany were lesbians. Lesbianism was not illegal under the Nazis, and they ended up wearing this black triangle, but not primarily because of their lesbian identity. All Roma Sinti Gypsy men wore black triangles. The largest triangle was the pink triangle, which was put in fabric on someone's jacket, on your trousers, as a sign that you were either primarily a homosexual a pederast or someone who had had sex with animals. 
These people were at the bottom of the pecking ladder. Their triangles were the biggest. They were the most subject to violence, persecution, rape. They were the primary target in the camps. And I was not aware of this. I don't know how many of you were who were around my age growing up. I knew about Jews, that was it. I didn't know this went on. Until 1972, when a German author published under a pseudonym a memoir of a friend of his who was a gay survivor of the camps. And the title of that book was The Men with the Pink Triangle. So suddenly, and I'm seeing some of you shake your heads, suddenly this image appeared in the world. And it appeared in the world, you know, we had, I think in 64, the Compton's Cafeteria riot in San Francisco, Stonewall Uprising in New York was 69. So this was really the early years of a gay, lesbian, queer community building itself, looking for images. And this pink triangle became a potent symbol for people as a badge of identification. It began to be used, and I was in New York then, by groups, by organizers, on signs, on buttons, on banners. And having that little image was powerful for a lot of people. It gave us a sort of a label. We are so accustomed to living in a world where images are transmuted. And the primary one that we see in this country is the crucifix. A symbol of death becomes a symbol of resurrection for a community and becomes meaningful. And in a different way, the pink triangle followed that journey. What heightened the awareness was 81 and the arrival of AIDS in our lives and the sense of redefining who we are as a community, redefining our politics, redefining our identity. And in 86, another book was published by gay Jewish author Richard Plant, who had fled Germany in 33, that's called The Pink Triangle, The Nazi War Against Homosexuals. And this drew more attention to the symbol. And then a year later, six New York artist activists created the Silence Equals Death Project. Large black poster, big pink triangle. They had it with a point up to transform the Nazi death symbol to something other. And this image, the triangle, silence equals death, they took soon after to act up. And act up spread this image, a political organization that was linking together in consciousness Nazi persecution of homosexuals, the silence in this country around AIDS, and the continuing persecution of LGBTQ people in the world. So all of this created, I think, what we would now call a new brand, which brings us back to our city. And it's possible that the largest pink triangle, I'm gonna ask this question in about a minute, is created every year in San Francisco. So in 1996, a local gentleman, Patrick Carney, was sitting with some friends thinking, how can we bring more color to the June Pride event? And they came up with this notion, not the rainbow flag, a pink triangle in the fashion of the Nazi symbol, inverted. And by stealth, as I recall, they crafted the first one up on Twin Peaks. The project is sustained every year by Patrick Carney, who is with us today wearing a pink triangle. So Patrick, thank you. So Patrick is gonna linger, has a little bit of information if you wanna get involved this year in putting up the triangle. 
What I can say is that it's been sustained in those years, and if I say anything wrong, just interrupt me, by your husband Hossein, by your sister, by your mother, who I think is 93, and gives out donuts and coffee to the people who I think are about 100, who show up at 7 o'clock in the morning, and this year's date to do this is the 24th of June, 7 o'clock. Patrick can tell you more about it. There's a link to the blog post from here that has information to their site. So this triangle, is it the largest one in the world? Do you know? It must be. <laughs> yes, okay. So if I get this right, it's made of 175 panels that are staked to Twin Peaks. 5,000 stakes, okay. So this is an amazing endeavor, and it's a teaching. And from our conversation and what I got from your website is that this is a constant educational reminder of what happened then, what happens now. If you're reading in the news, are there concentration camps starting in the Russian Federation? Is there a concentration camp in the Chechen Republic? Are gay people and possibly other queer people being rounded up. And where is this happening in the world? How many countries in the world is there still a death penalty for homosexuality? What are the levels of persecution? Clearly, this isn't just the past, and I think that's what your triangle teaches us every year. This is the present, and that's horrifying. Trini keeps bringing us back to this incredible awareness of how much work we have to do. So when we gather together in these spaces, and look around at who's here, we're in this together. How many of us might, in two hours or three or a month or a year, all be rounded up for all, any or all of our various identities? We don't know that yet. So the work goes on, and the work goes on in amazing ways every day. So there's another monument that I want to mention in San Francisco, and I don't know how many of you know it, the Pink Triangle Park. How many of you are aware of this? The Pink Triangle Park is actually on Market Street at the intersection of 17th Street. It's a small monument. It's sort of behind a Muni bus stop. You could miss it. But I invite you to go check it out right across the street from the enormous rainbow flag. Thank you for that. Is this little park. It's a wonderful little park, and it has a series of posts that are triangular posts, the top of which are pink granite. So how we live in the city, how we walk through this landscape, this history may often be invisible to us, but it hasn't gone away. So if we go to the memorial in the park, if we walk down the street and look at that, if we remember whatever our identity is, Jewish, not Jewish, queer, not queer, artist, not artist. We have this amazing reminder in this incredibly colorful space. In a time when many of us are feeling challenged again, we have this reminder, not just at Yom HaShoah, and not just in June when it's Pride Month in this city, but every day. We have this reminder that brings me back as a Jew to something that is said over and over and over again in the Torah, which is love the stranger, for you were strangers. Some variation of that is said again and again in the Torah. So look around again. I don't know how many of us know each other. I know a few of you. In this space, in this room surrounded by this art, if someone comes to seal that door, we're a community. 
how do we embody this? How do we embody this at every moment? How do we embody this when we walk out the door into our relative freedom? That's the invitation of the pink triangle. That's the invitation of the amazing work for all of these years that Patrick has done. That's the invitation of Gilbert's flag. And that's our opportunity today to step into the space and then step out of it as teachers, as guides, as embodied memory to pass the stories on. So thank you again, Patrick. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for this opportunity to talk, to tell stories. So thank you all so much.